Lord, we thank you that you have brought us here despite the weather. I pray that uh, you will help us to have ready and eager hearts and minds and ears. I pray that you will uh, grant us the, the grace to believe what we hear and to act on it. I ask that you help me as, uh, as uh, I'm preaching to do so in accordance with what you have revealed and um, help me to do so clearly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in, a, a middle, in the middle of a sermon not the middle of my sermon, that's going to be a long time from now, but, uh, but the middle of a sermon uh, from Peter, and that's uh, uh, that began in the beginning of, of chapter 3, or close to the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, Peter and John together are standing in Solomon's portico, and a vast crowd fills the Gentile court. This is just outside the, the, the temple uh, precincts. With them is a man who had been lame, from his mother's womb, and who until uh, maybe an hour before had sat at at one of the temple gates uh, begging. He sat there every every day, and everyone passing through that gate, and it was the main gate, everyone passing through that gate, uh, saw him and knew him. But then Peter saw him and stopped and said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk, or rise up. And then Peter took the man's hand, and he, he pulled him up to his feet. And this man, who'd never taken a step in his entire life, began leaping in the air and walking around and praising God. And that, of course, caused a stir, raised, a, raised the attention of the people in the, in the temple courts, and People were utterly amazed, we're told, wondering what happened, how did this happen, what, what came, came to pass to cause this man to walk, and they ran toward Peter and John and the man who was clinging to them, and they, they pushed their way, Peter and John and the man pushed their way to this portico where uh, Peter begins to preach. Now, have you ever heard a sermon, uh, maybe you're sitting there minding your own business, waiting for time to go by, waiting for it to be over or whatever. But then as you listen, something you've done, something you've said or, or thought, something maybe that you've buried down deep and don't think about it anymore, maybe you covered it over, excused it or justified it. And as, as the sermon's going on, that thing is just laid bare. It's, it's brought up. To the surface. You feel, as the preacher goes on, you feel exposed. I mean, you want to stop listening, maybe, and get up and leave, go somewhere else, but you don't because you're, you're, you're riveted by it because you realize it's not, it's not the preacher doing this because he doesn't know the depths of your heart. The preacher doesn't. He doesn't know your past. He doesn't know what you said. He doesn't know what you did. He doesn't know what you thought. Only Jesus knows those things. And he's the one at that point in time who's who's speaking to you. Because he loves you. He loves you too much to let you go on without setting you free from whatever that thing might be. That's what he's doing at that moment. He's, He's making your sin which maybe you've covered up, he's making it unbearable for you so that you can't avoid it anymore and you have no choice but to acknowledge it. No option but to to seek Jesus and his his pardon. 
That's the point toward which Jesus, through Peter, drives this crowd. Uh, he has said, Pontius Pilate, the Gentile governor, wanted to release to you your king, and you wanted a murderer instead. You screamed for the blood of God's own son. You denied, Peter said, the holy and righteous one. You killed, he said, the author of life. But this lame beggar, Peter said, stands today whole and healed because the one you killed has risen from the dead and God has exalted Jesus to his right hand. And this man walks by Jesus' power and Jesus' authority. So what now? The implicit question is at this point. What are you going to do now? Now, Luke does not tell us explicitly how the people respond to the accusations that Peter lays at their feet. But I think verse 17 indicates that, at the very least, we could say there's probably no scoffing. I don't think anyone here at this point is sneering or, or mocking. I think Peter sees recognition in their eyes. I think he sees fear. Grief. Uh, they're beginning, perhaps, to mourn over the one they pierced. They've, I think, at this point, been cut to the heart. And so in verse 17, Peter seems to, to soften the blow a little. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Now, when you read that line, you might think, no, now, wait a minute. Doesn't this overthrow everything that Peter has said up to this point? I mean, if they acted in ignorance, doesn't it follow that they're not guilty? It was just a misunderstanding with, with terrible consequences, to be sure, but, but they didn't know. They acted in ignorance. It was an accident, like uh, the woman who takes up the purse from the pew at the end of the church service and goes home, and she opens the purse, and she goes, oh, this is not my purse. She wasn't trying to steal someone else's purse. That, she shouldn't have to be really uh, feeling like she committed some moral crime. She hasn't. She just didn't know. It was, an, it was an accident. She's no thief. That's not the kind of ignorance that Peter has in mind. We know it's not because later he tells the people they must repent. And if it was just an accident, there'd be nothing to repent of. I, I grew up in South Texas, in Corpus Christi, Texas, and there, there's great Mexican food down in South Texas. Uh, when I was around six or seven, I, don't, I can't remember how old I was exactly, around six or seven, uh, we were at a, a Mexican restaurant, and... My dad was sitting next to me, and there was a, there was a shiny green pepper on his plate that, that I thought looked really good. So I, I reached out my grubby little hand uh, to take that, that thing, and my dad grabbed my hand, and he said, no, don't eat that. If you eat that, your, your, mouth, your whole mouth is going to feel like it's on fire. Don't eat that. So I bided my time. And I waited until my dad was doing something else, and I tried again. I reached out my hand and tried to get this shiny pepper. It looked really good. And then he grabbed my hand again and said, I told you, you don't want to eat that. It's hot, he said. So then 
bided my time again, and I waited until he was really in conversation with my mom. And before he could stop me, I snatched it off the plate, and I took a huge bite, a uh, big bite of this thing. And it took about a second before I realized, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. It was super, it was super hot. Uh, now, was, was I ignorant about the jalapeno? Let's think about it. My, my dad told me about the jalapeno clearly. He said, it's going it's to be painful for you. My dad had never lied to me before. At least, I don't think he ever has lied to me before. He, my dad fed me along with my mother and clothed me and protected me and loved me all my six years. There's no reason whatsoever not to trust what my, what my dad said. And there was every reason to believe it. but I wanted that shiny pepper so much that I told myself, that old man doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm, gonna, I didn't, I'm not sure I used that word, but those words, but that's what I was thinking. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to take the pepper. Now, I wasn't ignorant in the sense that I'd not been given the information. I had it. I made myself ignorant, though. And that's the sort of ignorance I think Peter has in mind. Uh, Jesus, if, Jesus was very clear. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who, who, who gives living water. I'm the door. I'm the true vine. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the son of the living God. I'm, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And alongside all of those, those claims, as you know, he performed miracles of a kind of a species that only God can do. Stopping storms. These are creation-level miracles. Stopping storms with his words. Walking on the water. Raising the dead. Giving people who did not have sight from birth sight. And people who were born lame the ability to walk. All of these are creation-level divine miracles. All the information and all the evidence that anyone needed was right there in, in front of them. Not to mention all the prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled right in front of their eyes. Yet they still denied him. Why did I steal my dad's jalapeno? Well, because I didn't want to believe him. Unbelief seemed like a better choice. And they didn't want to believe believe Jesus. Ironically, they didn't want to believe Jesus for the very same reason they're right now ready to seek his mercy. He exposed their hearts. He dismantled their pride. He revealed their iniquity. Nobody likes seeing that. But now they have been made to see it in such a way they can no longer excuse it and their hearts tremble. Peter comforts them here because as bad as that self-deception is, as bad as having the information and, and working as hard as you can to deny that it's true, that's better than bald defiance. It's better than if they had consciously said, yes, this is God's son and we're killing him. Nevertheless, even though it's not that bad, it's, it's still the greatest sin that anyone has committed ever. And the guilt for that sin still hangs over, over their heads because they had the truth and they preferred the lie. Now, last week we saw, as Peter was cutting through their, their defenses with his, with his words, he also sprinkled hints 
little hints of mercy. Allusions as he was preaching to the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And if you look down at verse 18, you will see that now he's no longer hinting. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now, as you know, first century Israelites longed for a Messiah who would make all the nations, the Romans especially, but all the nations bow down before him and them. They wanted political liberation and victory. And if you read the Old Testament, you will see that there's a lot of political victory and liberation promised. But in their desire for political salvation, political liberation, they ignored, misread, misinterpreted the passages, and there are lots of them, about the suffering of the Christ who comes to save Israel from their sins. Now this is, by the way, as an aside, why you need to read the whole Bible. Don't just camp on those passages you find encouraging. Read those, yes. Commit them to memory, yes. But, but Jesus communicates himself to you in every book of the Bible, in every text, every passage, every verse. And if you only read the parts you like, you'll have an incomplete portrait. You'll have a Jesus fashioned by your own preferences. A Jesus maybe who is all compassion and no justice. Or maybe, depending on who you are, maybe all justice and no compassion. Either way, you'll, you'll, you'll miss him. So because these people overlooked the passages about the suffering Christ, when they saw Jesus hanging on the tree, when they saw Jesus on the cross, they just saw a man under God's curse. They saw a man under God's wrath. But they missed the whole glorious point of it and purpose of it. There's a rebuke here when, when Peter mentions these prophecies. But it's a, it's, a, it's a golden rebuke. It's a beautiful rebuke. Because, because the prophecies that the Christ would suffer are the same prophecies that say he would suffer to save. Those prophecies begin at the beginning. Uh, uh, Jesus is the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who crushes the serpent's head and who is bruised himself in, in the crushing. As Abraham and Isaac are walking up, making their way up Mount Moriah, you might remember Isaac asks his father, where, dad, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham prophesies and he says, the Lord will provide a lamb for himself, for the sacrifice, my son. Jesus is the lamb who God provides. He's the Passover lamb whose blood covers the doorposts and keeps death away. He's the two goats on the day of atonement, one slain and its blood sprinkled on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, the second driven away into the wilderness, bearing Israel's sins on its head. He's the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering in the tabernacle. He's the one with pierced hands and pierced feet who cries out in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And of course, he's a suffering servant of Isaiah 53, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is what makes Peter's mild rebuke here also golden and beautiful. The, the prophecies about the suffering Christ are also the prophecies about the suffering of the Christ for sinners. You killed the author of life, yes, but he suffered willingly so that by his death you might live. He endured God's curse. He endured his own holy wrath toward evil and sin in order to quench the fire before it gets to you. The people in this crowd by this point had been made to stare into the pit. But here, the pit is shown to be an empty tomb. A living hope. The Christ suffered for you. He's telling them. He's died, he's been buried, now he lives, and his wrath is no more. It's been satisfied. He offers you pardon from his throne. Repent, therefore, he says, and turn back, uh, that your sins may be blotted out. One truth of our age, one painful truth of our age, is that the internet never forgets. Uh, what you wrote on Facebook back in 2009 it's still there somewhere. And if someone wants to, they can, they can, they can dig it up and find it and, and bring it uh, to the fore. The emails you've sent, the texts you've sent, the, the websites you've visited, the, the pictures you've sent or received, you can delete them. More than likely, they can be retrieved. They're out there somewhere. Many have learned this painfully. Now, in Peter's day, though, if you took a, a, a pen, an ink, ink, I'm not sure if it was a, a feather, a quill, whatever it was. If you took a, an ink thing, pen, a writing utensil, and wrote on parchment, but then later realized, oh, I shouldn't have written that. I wish I hadn't written that. You could take a wet cloth and blot out everything that you had written. And I'm not sure why it worked like this. I know it did. I, did, I should have studied more to figure out why. But for some reason, the ink they used did not sink into the parchment. So you could take a cloth and blot out everything that was written. And no one would have known what you wrote. You could blot it out and so that your words would be as if they were never said, never spoken, never, never seen, like you didn't write them. Now, I don't know what sins you have committed or you are committing. You may feel deep and unbearable shame for things going on in your life. But listen, whatever you've done, it does not come close to killing the Son of God. Now I know in a, in a spiritual sense we all bear some responsibility for his death. He died for our sins. But not direct responsibility. You weren't in the crowd crying out for his blood. These people were. They killed God's son. You can't do worse than that. But to that crowd, to those people, Peter says, if you repent, if you turn around to go the other direction, your sins, even that great and horrible sin, will be blotted out. 
It'll be gone. They'll all be gone as if they never happened. If you doubt, if you ever doubt the power of, of the cross and wonder whether, you know, can, can, can Jesus' blood really wipe away my, my sins? Come back here to this passage. That's, that's a promise that Jesus holds out to his killers. If that sin can be blotted out, what about yours? Have you come to him? If yes, there is no shame for you. Your offenses from beginning to the end of your life, he's seen them all and he's blotted them all out. They are no more. He will never bring them up to you again. Ever. But if you've not turned to him, do so now. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Long ago. I had a very good friend in high school. Um, we'd grown up together. Our families were friends, close. Uh, he was, and he still is, a believer. My junior year of high school, I did something incredibly stupid and evil to him. I'm not telling you what it was, but I, I did. You could just rest in that knowledge that I did it. Right? It was a betrayal. I betrayed my friendship with him. And it hurt him deeply. Maybe you've done something like that before. Maybe you've had someone do that to you. I, now, I wasn't a Christian yet, so my moral compass was all out of whack. But I still, even then, I, even, even that, though that was true, I recognized that what I did was a wicked, wicked thing. Really bad. And my friend cut me off. He said, we, we can't be friends anymore. And I, was, I was terribly sorry. And so I wrote a, a long... A full apology. I sent it by, by mail. Back then you sent things by letters. and If you were very serious, you wrote a letter. So I wrote a letter. And he got it a couple days later. And the day after he got it, he saw me in the, in the hallway at school. And he said, I read your letter. I want you to know I forgive you. But we still can't be friends. And from that day on, he was, he was friendly he was kind. He never brought the thing that I'd done up again, ever. But we weren't friends. I couldn't complain. He forgave me, but as you all know, I hope if you haven't, don't know this yet, you'll learn it. Sometimes human relationships, they just can't be repaired. Sometimes. But, but think about what Peter says here. Turn to Jesus and your sins will be blotted out. Now, that, that in itself is enough. That, that's mercy beyond mercy. No one should expect to have their sins blotted out, especially the people who killed him. But, but look at that word translated refreshing. See it? Sometimes that refers to the healing of a wound. Sometimes uh, you might use it if you're talking about coming out of the heat of the day into the shade and finding a cool brook, a traveler in, a wilderness, in the wilderness, thirsty and exhausted, coming across a spring under the shade of a sprawling tree of some kind. Jesus is saying, through Peter, 
Not only will I blot out your sins, I'll be your friend and your God and your shepherd. I'll be your shade from the burning sun and a fountain of living water. Now some read uh, verse 20 there and they see a kind of if-then. Like, if you, Israel, repent, then God will send the Christ. Not till then. So they'll say, uh, Jesus' second coming depends on the conversion of the blood descendants of Abraham. If only they would repent, then Jesus would come back. Now, I I think that will happen. I think that when Paul in Romans 11 says all Israel will be saved, I'm I'm convinced he means ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham uh, will be saved. But that doesn't mean that, that, that Israel drives the timeline and that God's dependent on what they do. The text itself says, heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all things. There is an appointed time set by the Father for restoring all things. It may be that the conversion of the descendants of Abraham will be the last thing that happens before Jesus comes back, but even if it is, that's God's work. God alone changes hearts. He can do that today. He could convert every single uh, descendant of Abraham right now to the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have done that 2,000 years ago. So I think it's more likely that Peter is saying, turn to him now so that when God sends the Christ to restore all things, you'll be among those restored. He's not going to come against you. He's going to come for you. And we should ask, what is this restoration of which, of which he speaks, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago? Well, there's a lots, of, lots of texts we could go to, but I'll just give you one of my favorites from Isaiah chapter 25. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Everything sin has torn down, Jesus will build back up. Everything sin has torn apart, he will bind together. Every sad thing will be undone. Death, sorrow, crying, pain, Jesus will banish all of these things forever. That's what the restoration is. And Peter's handing it, holding it out to these people and to you. Moses said, verse 22, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. That's from Deuteronomy 18. If you remember what's going on there, uh, God has told Moses, you can't cross over into the promised land. And so the people know that and they're afraid and they're anxious. Who's going to speak to us from the Lord now that that you have to go away? Uh, How do we know what to do and where to go? They want to know. And so the Lord says uh, uh, through Moses that, that he's going to raise up a prophet like him, like Moses, from among the people. 
Now, for a long time, people thought the prophet, uh, that, God, that, the, that Moses just meant that God would raise up other prophets to, to come along after him. And God did do that. And so I think it partly means that. But was there ever, was there ever a prophet like Moses? God delivered his people from bondage, from slavery, through Moses. God gave his law through Moses. And the sacrifices of the tabernacle, he gave those through Moses uh, for the forgiveness of those who broke the law. Through Moses, God parted the Red Sea. He brought water from a rock. He brought bread from heaven. There has never been a prophet like Moses until now. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. He is the, 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 the living rock from which living water pours. God doesn't just speak through Jesus. Jesus is the God through whom God speaks. Through whom he's God speaking is what he is. He's the eternal word breathed, who breathed out the law and the prophets and the gospel itself. He delivered his people from bondage to sin and death. And by his death, he poured out his blood for the sins of, of, of his people. Not, not only is he like Moses, Moses was a foretaste of Christ. Now notice the warning. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from, from the people. That's also from Deuteronomy 18. Except, and there's a difference, and it's an important difference, in Deuteronomy 18, the warning reads like this. Whoever will not listen to my words that the prophet speaks, speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. Peter adds, every soul who does not listen shall be destroyed from the people. What's he doing? Well, Peter has spliced in a passage from Leviticus Chapter 23, and I'll read that passage to you. That passage reads, Whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Now, why splice in that text there from Leviticus 23? Is Peter just trying to, to amp up the warning, beef it up a little bit, uh, make it sound more scary? I don't think so. The Leviticus 23 warning has to do with the Day of Atonement. On the day when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bull and the goats to sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat for the sins of his people, whoever does any work on that day will be destroyed from among his people. For the work of the high priest to be for you, for, for your atonement, you must rest. So the, 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 the Israelite, he says, oh, this is a waste of time. I'm going to go out and plow my field. The atonement will not be for him. He's destroyed. So maybe you can see what Peter's doing. The prophet like Moses has come. And he's also your high priest who's offered his blood to take away your sin. But you can only have his atonement if you do as he says. And what he says is, put away your plow and rest in my work and trust me. 
There's no other way. There's no forgiveness. There's no refreshing. There's no restoration for you unless you find rest in him. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him who also proclaimed these days. Samuel, you might remember, is the prophet who anointed David king over Israel. I think that's a connection that, that Peter wants his hearers to draw. David and his house, his throne, God promised, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to still put him on your throne and his kingdom is going to last forever. And now God has enthroned Jesus who sits at his right hand ruling a kingdom that, that never is, never ends. It always is. It never ends. He's your king. He's your shepherd. He heals your wounds and saves you from the enemy. All the prophets look forward to the time that has now been established. You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is Peter, uh, as an Israelite, appealing to fellow Israelites. Yours, yours is the testimony. Yours are the laws. Yours are the prophets. God made a covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses. They ruined it. They broke it. That covenant at this point is lying tattered on the ground. But there was an older covenant, one that came before the covenant with Moses, an older covenant that no one can break because it wasn't founded on human obedience, but on God. His promise of love and, and faithfulness. God said to Abraham, in your offspring, not offsprings, one, only one, offspring, in your offspring, singular, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The offspring of Abraham, of course, is Jesus. And Peter is saying, God sent him to you. God sent him to you first, Israel, to bless you. His, his death even at your hands is also God's blessing for you. He's come to turn each of you from your wickedness. And notice the emphasis here is on each individual. You must personally turn from your wickedness. Yes, Peter says, Jesus is, Jesus is the one who does the turning, but you can know Jesus has turned a person when, when that person turns. Have you turned from your wickedness? I'm not asking you, have you stopped sinning? That's not the wickedness to which Peter refers here. He means the wickedness of hearing Christ Jesus offer himself to you. His body, his blood, his kingdom, his friendship. Offering to blot out all of your sins and give you a feast that never ends. Hearing all that, the wickedness is 
saying, no, I, I, I don't need any of that. I don't need your cross. I don't need your resurrection. And if you've committed yourself to that wickedness, it has no cure because that wickedness throws the cure out. Don't do that. Now, I know, I know well that most everyone here knows Jesus. I understand that. And I hope if you do know Jesus, if you've come to him, that you have been encouraged by the surety that your sins have been blotted out and that you have refreshing in Christ Jesus and the restoration of all things is before you as a guaranteed promise. But perhaps you have come to this place this morning and you have up to this point in time refused him. Turn from that wickedness. You don't have to stand up or close your eyes and raise your hands or walk down an aisle. You don't have to speak out loud even. He can hear words unspoken. But confess to him that you've sinned against him. Acknowledge that you are guilty. Ask him to have mercy on you and blot out your sins. And he will. He bled for you. He died for you. He will blot out all of your sins and bring you to that place of refreshing. Let's pray. Lord, we all confess that we all confess that we have uh, sinned against you and that um, there's nothing that we can do in our, in our own power or strength to help ourselves, but we also believe and trust that you, by your Son, have blotted out our sins and he is our refreshment, and in him we find our restoration. Lord, I do pray for those here, if there are any who, who don't know your son, that you might cut them to the heart and bring those people to uh, knowledge of their own sin, but also knowledge of your son who bears it away. And we all pray this in his name. Amen.